Welcome to the Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes, and. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. We are here in the studio with Dr. Lois Holtzman. Say hi, Lois. Hi. Hi. We're super lucky to have her here today. Dr. Holtzman is director and co-founder of the Eastside Institute, a research center for developing and promoting alternative and radically humanistic approaches in psychology, education, and community building. Lois received her doctorate in developmental psychology and psycholinguistics from Columbia University. She's the author of four books, including most recently, The Overweight Brain, How Our Obsession with knowing keeps us from getting smart enough to make a better world. Lois is currently at the UNCG campus in her role as Distinguished Visiting Fellow in Vygotsky in Practice and Performance in Lloyd International Honors College. Lois, welcome. We're so honored to have you here. Thank you so much. I feel very privileged to be here, especially with the two of you. (laughs) Thank you. Lois, um, in your lecture at UNC Greensboro last night, you mentioned how we've compartmentalized play and learning as if they're separate. Uh, Learning becomes associated with work and play with having fun. You're a major proponent of the idea of blurring the lines between work and play, of bringing play back into education. Can you tell us a little more about why you think play is so important for learning? If we go to our beginnings, um, not as a species so much, but as each of us as a human being, how we function in the world and how we've learned anything and how we've developed and grown is through play. There are no times for learning when you're a baby. You're learning all the time and you're also playing all the time, except when you're sleeping, although who knows, (laughs) and when you're crying, although many, many parents are very playful when kids are crying. And that's one of the ways you get them to stop crying, Mm -hmm. is to play. So I and many other people around the world, play researchers, um, you know, uh, I can just speak about the most famous play researcher, the pioneer named Brian Sutton Smith, who's an anthropologist uh, originally from New Zealand. And his famous book is The Ambiguity of Play. And in there, he talks about many, many things. But the line that really gets me is he say, the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. So uh, we were talking. That's heavy. I got chills when you said that. (laughs) And yesterday, Omar, you and I were talking about, and with some of the students, the Mm -hmm. honor students ambassadors, about the increase in referrals to the mental health clinic of um, college students, not just here, but around around the country. Mm -hmm. And I just think of Brian Sutton Smith's comment constantly. One more thing, there's also another very prominent researcher, psychologist named Peter Gray, who's written many, many books, and he looks at the increase in mental health issues in children and the decrease in play and the correlation between those two. So this idea of play is really interesting, and I know a lot of your work is informed by performance and improvisation. How do you come to that? Are you yourself trained in theater? Do you have to be a performer to perform in this way? (laughs) 
I think you become a performer by looking through the lens of performance. That's a characteristic of human beings, that we're in some way always performing, and that when we're very little, we're supported to perform, and we don't even know we're doing it. As you get older, though, and you are discouraged from performing and continuously told to learn and to work and to be yourself, be true to yourself, um, we're not supported to perform so much anymore and to try out new roles and new things to do and new ways to do them. So I am a performer and you're a performer in that sense. Mm-hmm. In the sense of, was I trained being on the stage? Absolutely not. Do I even like it? No. <laughs> but, but that's not the most relevant thing. I mean, it's wonderful how so many people have come to embrace performance and to learn to perform on the stage who haven't come from the stage. And they're mixing with people who have been trained and love to be on the stage, but then in real life don't perform. Their job is to perform and to be other characters and to be mm-hmm. different from mm-hmm. who they think they are. Mm-hmm. So that mix of the, the kind of opposites and when you get them together, magic happens. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking you're talking about being a kid and performing, and I'm remembering my son, who's now 15 when he was little, would always be wanting to do skits and scenes with us all the time. And I think that's really typical of little kids. And one of his big things was he was Bob the Builder and I was Wendy. <laughs> and like that was what we would do all the time. Or he was Ernie and I was Bert. And like <laughs> that was constant. And then at some age, we stopped doing yeah. that. Like we re- they get embarrassed. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have that, mm-hmm. play that game anymore. Yeah. So how can we encourage them and you? You right. Know, you may not have wanted to play it too much anymore. Who knows? Right, right, right. I was, yeah, I may have been relieved to give up my roles, Wendy. <laughs> it seems like it requires a kind of intentionality. Mm-hmm. As, as adults, you have to kind of be very intentional to, to do this. There is a methodology. The name of this podcast is Yes and Cafe, and it's something that we've embraced uh, on this campus to some extent. And in your work, you draw on this concept of yes and as a guiding principle of improvisational theater. And you say that yes and enables what you call, quote, practical, critical activity. So what is practical, critical activity? And how does yes and make it possible? Great question. Uh, I will be discovering the answer to that as I respond to you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is the best kind of question. (laughs) There's no bad answer to this one. I'm going to create it. Um, Okay, so... Practical critical activity is a synthesis of the practical, okay? People who do things, let's say, well, let's just do it. And the critical, which is, as maybe many listeners know, there are fields in in just about every discipline. There's critical pedagogy, there's critical psychology, there's critical economics, there's critical history, there's critical, you know, science studies, Mm -hmm. which look at the, the assumptions of a particular discipline and critique it critique it from political perspectives, from um, philosophical, foundational, all different ways, but they're called critical in their fields. And I have many colleagues that are critical psychologists or critical educators, but they don't do anything (laughs) except that. (laughs) Except criticize what other people are doing? It's what other people and the institutions. Mm -hmm. So they're in education, there's so many people who criticize how education runs from a foundational level, like yeah. what the theory of learning is and mm-hmm. why are, are people who are similar to each other put together, they should be all mixed up, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Then there are people who start new schools and to homeschool their kids or whatever. You know, they do the practical. They say, I'm not involved in that. 
practical critical is the synthesis of those things where what you're doing is creating something, you're doing something, and that something is at the same time a critique of what exists. Mm-hmm. So the therapeutic work that we are involved in at the Institute is a critique of traditional therapy, but it's not a critique in and of itself. It's a practice, and in the practice, is the critique. So if you come into therapy and it's a group therapy and the questions are something like, you know, I had this horrible day and I feel like killing myself and then some group member or the therapist might say, what kind of help do you want? How, how, why are you telling us this now? What would you like us to do? That in itself is a critique of the traditional approach, which would be taking notes and saying, have you felt this way before, and diagnosing. Mm-hmm. So that's one example mm-hmm. of the critique. I think the work that you're doing in bringing play and performance and into the higher education, into your classrooms and your seminars and outside, and it's called Play Monday, Monday, Monday play, play, Monday Play, yeah. is itself a critique. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not nasty. It's not negative. It's not putting anybody down down it's Mm -hmm. saying we're going to do this thing Mm -hmm. and in the in it we'll discover some of the things that are problematic about how they're usually done Mm -hmm. and at the same time build something new Mm -hmm. right so the question was about improvisation right Mm -hmm. and how is it practical critical activity well i i think and i owe this to kathy salet my colleague who runs a company called performance of lifetime that brings improv and performance into you take a situation like a um a a dating scene Mm -hmm. so it's taking the cultural activity of creating something ridiculous and fantastical they are creating the environment for the scene at the same time thing that happens on the stage at the same time that's practical critical activity Mm -hmm. going negative you go positive by building Mm -hmm. and that is the critique to me, that just feels so much better, just yeah. at a basic human level. Just and pointing out all the things that, that are, are wrong. wrong right. right. To say, let's let's just do something different. Exactly. And exactly. then sort of the problem vanishes. Yep. Exactly. So just getting a little more into the, the personal history here, I, our listeners may not know that, Lois, you and Omar have actually known each other for a long time, oh, about 30 years, and have worked together on community building projects for a long time, even before Omar was here at UNC Greensboro. And I just wondered if you might share some snippets or highlights of that work together. Maybe one of those things would be the presidential campaign for Dr. Lenora Filani. Maybe it would be something else. Maybe talk a little about mm-hmm. your experience together. Sure. Yeah, you I go mean, first. It, it, in some ways, I feel like I'm such a beneficiary, as we all are, of the many people who came before us and pioneered and created the stages for us and for them to develop and grow. And I feel very lucky because in my 20s, I met grassroots organizers who were community builders of trying to create something that was positive in the world. When Lois talks about practical, critical activities, these were the folks who were doing that under the leadership uh, philosopher and actually Lois's chief intellectual partner, um, Dr. Fred Newman, a philosopher of science. And there was a movement that they were building and one of its manifestations was the presidential campaign in 1988 of Dr. Lenore Filani, the first woman, first African-American to get on the ballot in all 50 states. And I came around and I, I met Lois like in 1990. I was actually on my way as a student from, from Michigan to London. And I was introduced to her by a mutual friend of ours, I think it was Jan Wooten actually who made the, the, the connection. And I was completely intrigued by some of the work that 
she was doing uh, in terms of the written stuff, but also the, the kind of projects and programs that were being created. And some of those projects I still support and involved in, like the All Stars Project, which we had a, an affiliate here in Greensboro called Community Play. And in some ways, the methodology was all this that we're talking about, the yes-anding, the building of environments, being intentional. And that infused everything that was being done. And I found it to be an incredibly powerful way of helping well, helping myself to grow and develop as I was helping others to create developmental environments and new opportunities. So I met Lois. I just stayed as close to her as possible, even though if I'm not geographically in the same <laughs> space, I keep reading and I keep in touch with her. That's how we first met. Is that how you experienced when we first met? Or you? I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> so that's as good as anything. <laughs> then you can just make it up. <laughs> Um, I do think the line of campaign was a particular moment within that history. It's just such a wonderful long story that has so many twists and turns in it. Improvisational. Well, let's try to let's try this. Let's try to open clinics in poor neighborhoods. Um, well, that didn't work. <laughs> well, let's try this. Let's let's or- organize. Uh, you know, go into the labor unions and see if we can help develop leadership there. And then when we discovered performance through the work in the theater that we were doing, and Fred Newman starting an improv troupe mm-hmm. at the theater and the work that I was doing and sharing with Fred Vygotsky's understanding of performance and and play when they came together and we, we then started like put these glasses on mm-hmm. these are performance glasses and then we saw everything that we were doing as performance yeah. and so when people fanned out across the country to gather signatures to get Dr. Filani on the ballot the presidential ballot in each each of the 50 states how do you go to somebody's door mm-hmm. you have to perform mm-hmm. you not only have a script but then you improvise with the script but you ha- you can't just be you know Lois Holtzman from New York City going into Montana. Right. You got to be powerful, Lois Holtzman, <laughs> listening, yeah. going to the door. You don't know who you're going to meet, how they're going to respond to you, and you have to be able to yes and them. Yeah. yeah. So we thought that we would bring in another guest. Tucker Daniel is a saxophonist and senior at UNC Greensboro, double majoring in music and Spanish. He's originally from Apex, North Carolina. He's a volunteer for our campus, the Center for New North Carolinians, where he plays music with a group of teenagers from Southeast Asia who are new to our community. Uh, We've had the pleasure of having Tucker as a student in our class that we co-taught several semesters ago called How Do We Know What We Know? And we were always thrilled with his insightful perspectives on pretty much any topic. We're so glad to have Tucker here joining the conversation. Welcome, Tucker. Hey, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So what are your thoughts about the conversation and what Lois has been laying out in terms of play, performance, improvisation, um, development, learning, um, everything? (laughs) Uh, Well, specifically talking about my work with the Center for New North Carolinians, a lot of what we did there was developing our students' ability to learn an instrument, but not through the sense of, let's start with scales, let's start with these basics that everybody does when they first start playing piano at five years old. Uh, Most of these students were middle schoolers, some of them were even high schoolers, had never played an instrument before, 
and we just started straight off with once you get the basics of this is how to make a note on this instrument let's start playing let's start mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. making things happen so I worked with I I myself would no longer consider myself a jazz saxophone player. I perform mostly classical music, but I worked with some of the jazz department towards this. So I would work directly with another, a trumpet player in the studio who was very well versed in jazz improvisation. And we both contributed our relative expertise, his in improvisation specifically and mine in formal education training, and worked to find a way where we can integrally build these students' ability on the instrument via improvisation. That came a lot from the discussions that we had in your class and the discussions that we had in my colloquium classes where we read Vygotsky work at play. And it's really interesting to see the results of that, like the ability of students to feel comfortable making a fool of themselves in a lot of ways, you know, because we all need to, we all have to, and I do all the time. And, And a big part of being comfortable with that is improving. Mm-hmm. And uh, when something goes wrong, seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, I was thinking about how um, part of what's really important in our development is going with the flow, which is one of those other you know improv um, principles. But allowing ourselves to embrace being to use the word foolish or to fail. It's such a stigma to be a fool or to be or to fail in our, you know, in university settings in our society. Uh, once you're no longer a child, once you're no longer a kid, you're it's it's not it's not encouraged. And yet I think that those are the ways in which we continue to develop and grow. There is an attraction, however. I, mean, I was just thinking of so many sitcoms, and it's it's the person who's ridiculous and fo- and made to look foolish that mm. that people embrace right. and love. Right, mm-hmm. that's so true. I that's think true. we're conflicted about it a little bit. That's interesting, yeah, because yeah. it's sort of displaced about it. It's like also the the underdog or something about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I think there's also that fear that will people actually think it's funny if I go out there, right? So Mm -hmm. there's that. Mm -hmm. Is that also the relationship of the group that's so important to know that when you go out on a limb, there's going to be people there to support you Mm -hmm. because that you know you can only be funny if everyone else is laughing. That's Mm -hmm. true. Not to mention that so much of improv isn't funny. I mean, one of the right. first things you have to do if you're doing scenes with people, mm-hmm. if you're teaching them scene skills and yes and and accepting offers, is don't try to be funny. Because mm-hmm. if you try to be funny, you're going to be thinking and you're not going to be listening mm-hmm. in the and you're not going to be present. Yeah. Yeah. Counterintuitive, right? Because we think that we have to be funny in order to be funny. Right. But, but you actually, don't. you don't. And in fact, that can be a barrier to you exactly. being funny. Yeah. I was thinking how how extraordinary Tucker is. I mean, Naj and I talk about Tucker. We, this is what we do in <laughs> yeah, our spare do. time. We talk we about Tucker. <laughs> I mean, and, and I was just thinking, like, how is a Tucker produced in the world? Somebody who is so attentive, pays attention, because that's one of the important things in improvisational theater. You have to be paying attention. But not only paying attention, but also acknowledging others. And I think that that's a way of giving offers, to use that language. Tucker, how did you become Tucker? <laughs> oh. Uh. That's not a tough question at all. <laughs> Well, specifically addressing just the improvisational aspects of, like, how I've grown up in a classroom and such, um, I've always been really, really curious, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. very much someone to want to understand not only what, but why. Mm -hmm. Gotta say, I got that one from my dad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He would, you know, give me rules 
things like that, and I would constantly just be like, why? <laughs> and when I was in middle school, it was quite a problem. But nowadays, it's come to the point where, for me, it's it's gifted me with an ability to empathize um, mm-hmm. to the extent that if somebody believes a certain way, I want to know more than anything, not mm-hmm. necessarily what they believe, mm-hmm. but what drew them to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the class, you know, how do we know what we know is particularly abetting in that. Like, mm-hmm. It was very, mm-hmm. very helpful in my goal towards figuring out why is it that we've come to the conclusions that we're in. Mm-hmm. So for me, listening is the easiest way to do that, is to hear somebody out mm-hmm. and say, tell me in in no constraints to what your argument is, just tell me what it is. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about why you believe that way mm-hmm. and why I might come to the exact opposite conclusion with the same information. It's amazing. Reminds me of the book that you mentioned in your mm-hmm. talk last night, Lois, about listening. Yeah. Could you say something about that? Sure. Um, the book is called Don't Label Me, mm-hmm. and it's a personal story and includes very practical ways to do what Tucker was talking about, and that what we've done is created, in a way, such polarization because we so make so many conclusions about people and label them beforehand, mm-hmm. but how would you, people you don't agree with, yeah. how do you create some kind of conversation with them just exactly? the way you were talking about. I really recommend the book, Don't Label Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something to add to that is I also grew up in a in a community that was very much different than the one I live in now, mm-hmm. um, both in like racial background, income background. It was it was completely made up of one class of pretty much anything. Um, my parents are conservative Christians. Um, my background is is very much like myself, Caucasian, middle income, and then coming to UNCG, I saw everything, mm-hmm. every, everything under the sun, all sort of different diversity that represents new opportunities for me to understand where that comes from and what I had to reckon with was my parents' ideas that might have been antiquated compared to what I believe nowadays, or at least in my opinion, versus my ability to empathize with the experience of another human mm-hmm. and saying, how can we both be humans and, and come to come to this in such different ways? There mm-hmm. had to be a way for me to do something other than just dismiss and say, mm-hmm. clearly you haven't read enough. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it's so easy to say when you've got your argument. You mm-hmm. say, well, I've read about my argument. Clearly you just haven't read the same articles I have. Mm-hmm. But then you find the exception. You find somebody that says, well, I've read this article. Have you read this opinion mm-hmm. on, on this issue and it brings you to a totally different conclusion and you still might end up on the opposite side of whatever issue you're on but the significant part of that for me is having the empathy to be able to say like there's another human who believes this therefore it has value mm-hmm. to some extent and I should consider that value. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the spirit of empathizing because in some ways I think for me I'm less concerned about arguments quite frankly and more about the human being that I'm talking to right in front of me and trying to hear. I in some ways, I, I, that really resonates. But I was thinking about a conversation you and I had, Lois, about your thoughts on empathy. <laughs> I was wondering if you could say something about that, because I think that it's in line with, but it's sort of a different take on the word empathy, which we use. Yeah, I was thinking similar thoughts about as I was listening to you. And, you know, I, I can't really tell if it's a, a difference that makes a difference or not. You know, I think it's that will be discovered in conversation. For me, empathy is problematic, although I know it's an everyday word now, and I'm, and people mean different things by it. So, But to the extent that empathy means I recognize your humanity because I feel similarly, that's what's problematic to me, really. So 
about what you were saying is that what we tend to do when people disagree with us and we're violent, you know, like it's something emotional and passionate, Mm -hmm. is we demonize them. So, and I don't think that you have to empathize in order to stop demonizing. In fact, I think it's a deterrent. Like, there's no way I could possibly feel what a homeless person feels. And so I don't empathize. I don't think. If that's what that means. What I do do is relate to them as a human being. But I don't need to be in their shoes or imagine what it's like to be homeless in order to think they're a human being. But this new popularity of empathy, it seems to me, is inserting something called empathy between us as human beings Mm. who recognize Mm -hmm. that we're human. So everybody's getting empathy training. Doctors are getting empathy training. (laughs) But what do you mean by when you say relating to the person as a human? Because, I mean, I think isn't the spirit of empathizing or putting yourself in somebody else's shoes an effort to try to get to their humanity? But why would you need to get to their humanity? As opposed to doing what? They are. They are. already there. (laughs) They are. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do people... Everybody relates to a baby, a kitten, a puppy, a, a, a piglet. You know, like you, I don't know, it's like affection, it's love, it's oh my mm-hmm. God, they're so cute. It's how come we lost that mm-hmm. when they're not so cute anymore? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you have the capacity. You don't empathize with a piglet. You really don't. <laughs> it's true. I do not. I do not. I do not. <laughs> Although maybe I could try just to see what it would be like. What, one of the things I really <laughs> like about the conversation about yes and is that sometimes it's not so much about getting to a point of agreement or the same point, but from what I understand, it's about the, the activity of having the interaction is the part that matters. And I noticed, I know that about Tucker. Yeah. I know him to be somebody who's always engaging with people to build the relationship because that's that's what we get. Well, we are at the mark of wrapping up our first podcast. Uh, why don't we give ourselves a little round of applause? Okay. And, and to our, our, our crew who has made it possible to do this. So thank you all. Uh, this has been fun. What would you all think? Had a blast. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Loved it. We just got started. Yeah, I know. Started. We That's could right. keep going for another five hours. That's right. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, I guess we'll catch you next time. Yes. Thank you, Lois. This has been a wonderful thank conversation. Thank you, and thank, thank you, Tucker. Tucker. Thank yeah, you wonderful. Take care. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including our production team, Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson. If you're interested in learning more about Lois's work, please check out the links associated with this podcast.